You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I was an only child, didn't have any any brothers and sisters growing up, but my, my dad and my mom had a ton of brothers and sisters, both seven on each side, making a total of nine aunts and whatever it is for uncles on on each, each other alternative sides. And so that was kind of like my fam, my extended family. And my cousins uh, were kind of like my brothers and sisters that you don't hate. You know, you get to go home and not have to like sleep next to them and, you know, fight over uh, the last bagel bite or whatever it is. And so um, love the cousin life, love the aunt and uncle life. Because um, uh, the aunt and uncles, are you an aunt or are you an uncle? They, they play a good role. They play a big role because, you know, they actually um, love you like your parents do, but they actually have the energy and time to, like, put up with you, and you're not, like, on their nerves. So it's like having an adult, you know, figure that's there. And uh, I also had the privilege, especially on my mom's side, to have, like, younger aunts. So it's, like, aunts in their 20s. Uh, I call those people cool aunts. Are you a cool aunt? Because not only do they have the time and the energy, but they got a little bit of money, too. And so they're, like, buying you, like, the game, you know. It's like that's what they're thinking about all year round as opposed to your parents, and they get you the, the fun gifts. And so, um, yeah, and it also just like being an only child and like not having sisters or whatever, it's just like everybody, you know, on, on my mom and dad's side, I'm old, you know, it's like they all like dressed and looked like out of the 50s, but these people were like 80s cool aunts with like the cool hair and the cool jeans and the cool car. And the best thing about a cool aunt is they oftentimes brought home cool boyfriends. Uh, they, they were cool, you know what I mean? And so like just mullets just looked so good and perms and all that stuff and the cool car and, you know, you just like, kind of suck up to him and see if you can like get hit a three-pointer on him or something, get him impressed or whatever. It's just like a great time to be alive, you know. But, uh, you know, as, as the story goes with those types of things, like um, usually the, the aunt or the sister whoever has the boyfriend brings him home for Thanksgiving. When they break up with him the next Thanksgiving, they get closure, but the rest of the family doesn't get closure. And you're just kind of like, I kind of miss Bobby. I want Bobby to come back. I know he's a jerk. He's a jerk, but I miss Bobby. And so um, I remember, you know, going through just being nosy um, in Indiana where, you know, I'd visit my aunts or whatever and I'd go through, through uh, their room and I remember seeing one of my aunts just cut out old Bobby out of the picture. Just <laughs> cut him out, man. Because with the uh, Altmeyer sisters, it's like if you're in, you're in, but if you're out, too bad. You're out forever. And, um, and so I, I bring up those, um, those, uh, those stories or that, that kind of image this morning um, uh, in the sense that uh, today, you know, talking about Paul's conversion, uh, we're talking about um, the past. And, um, and as much as we'd like to, you know, actually be able to cut parts of our past out, uh, you just can't. I don't know if you tried, but you can't. Uh, as much as you like, you can't run from your past, can't hide your past, can't uh, outweigh your past, can't escape your past, uh, because the past uh, has shaped your present. Uh, your past is, is like a shadow. You can run as fast as you possibly can, but as soon as you turn around, there your past is, uh, like it or not. And so past has, has shaped us. Um, you know, for example, if I did a quick poll here uh, today, um, other than Fred, who's kind of ruined my little sermon illustration this morning, I'm going to guess that nobody else besides Fred can speak Mandarin he- here today. Uh, and that has to do with your past. <laughs> you can't fix the, pa- the, fa- the fact that you grew up in an English-speaking country, and so it's like you, you can't, it's like you're... You, it's invisible to you. It's kind of like um, it's something that you don't think about a lot, you know. Uh, you know, nine times out of ten, and, and maybe not as much in, 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 maybe in the South as, as in other areas of the world, but, you know, um, a lot of times uh, politicians and socio- sociologists can basically tell you what kind of your view is on politics based on the past home that you grew up in, the values that you lived in, and the fishbowl that you swam in. You know, we inherit 
those types of political views from our past. Your birth order, for example, uh, can pretty legitimately, I think you could probably line up, you know, in your family and in your circle, who's the firstborn, the middle child, right, the youngest child, because there's, there's a past inherited and all that. And that's just all the cultural stuff just to get started. And on the personal level, you, um, you know, maybe probably in this room didn't get the free ride to Harvard, okay? And so whatever it is just under that of wherever it is that you reach, that very much dictated your occupation and, and class and status, your relationships. Uh, saw a great little vine or whatever they call them, TikToks these days. <laughs> oh, gosh. Of, uh, of, of Mr. Rogers, uh, he gave this speech. He was like, I want everybody to take 10 seconds of silence to think about some of the people in your life that made you who you are today. And they pan out to these celebrities. They're bawling, crying, you know, because they're just thinking about, like, nobody here is a self-made man, a safe, self-made woman. Like, we're handed down these, like, precious relationships. If it wasn't for them, where would we be? Our loss shapes our lives. And whether we like it or not, probably pain is one of the most powerful agents of who we are and how we've gotten to this place. We are, in many ways, our personality is being shaped by how we respond to our loss. And so um, it kind of makes sense then, you know. Um, it's actually a study called epigenetics. This is this thing where the study of, of like an alcoholic gene or, or, or a compulsive gene. Like, it's not just cultural, not just personal, but it's, but it's actually generational. We inherit a generational history, thinking about that or, or not. Even so much so that I um, heard of a study this last week where... Um, they tested survivors of the Holocaust and they found stress genes in all of them that didn't exist in their previous generations. And not only did the first generation have the stress genes, but their kids and their kids' kids had the stress gene that was not just telling them about their blue eyes and their blonde hair, but it was telling them about their experience of, the, of, their, of their relatives to think about the power of, of the past, not just in the last 30 years or whatever, but in, in hundreds and hundreds of years. And and so it is, you can think about a, you know, a verse like Exodus 34, 6, where God says, I, I will visit, you know, the sins of the father on the kids. Unfortunately, I don't know what to tell you, like, things I'm doing are not just affecting me. They're affecting you, but they're also affecting Leo. And Leo's kid and Leo's kid's kid. So we inherit, we inherit these, these things. And so that's why it's such good news that despite the fact that our past is shaping us, that in Christ our past cannot define us. A couple of verses, let's say, to meditate on that, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If you are in Christ, and I urge you, if you're not, to place your, to place your hope, to place your future in Christ, because this is what becomes true of a person a moment after they trust Christ for salvation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, not just you go to heaven when you die, but you become a new person, says Paul. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 1 John 1.9 says that in Christ, if we confess our sins, you can't scrub your hard drive of all the pictures of the X's and cut out all the memories and the, the, the core feelings that you have when you come in contact with different spaces and people. But if you confess your sins to Jesus, he is faithful to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Of course, famous one, Philippians 3.13-14, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do know, I forget what is behind, and I strain toward what's ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. That in Christ, our past may be shaping us, but it cannot define us, and it cannot tell us what our future is. So if you're just joining us, we're typically making our way through whole books of the Bible from left to right, and we're in Acts chapter 9 this morning. And if you follow me up here to the screen of the uh, Acts target here, uh, the framework of Luke's book, which is a two-part, uh, the circles, if we, if we have it, uh, 
uh, of Luke Acts, which is this one volume, it's like Star Wars 1 and 2, without the credits rolling between, is one continuous narrative, and the framework of the chapters are as such. Jerusalem, 1 through 7, Judea and Samaria, uh, 8 through 12, and then ends of the earth, 13 through 28. So we're right there in the second circle of the bullseye in Judea and Samaria. Another way to think about it is that the gospel moves from a place that is 100% Jewish to a place that is 50% Jewish to a place that is uh, 0% Jewish to the ends of the earth. And, uh, and so this little segment right here in the second ring is really a, a, a season of transition. It's church in transition. That's what all of these chapters are about. Remember, Mr. Rogers, you know, his television show, he'd take you on a little uh, field trip and you'd get to see how crayons were made. Uh, and they'd play that little kind of creepy 80s music. And he'd be just so fixated, like Willy Wonka, just like stirring up wax and melting it down and solidifying the crayon and putting the wrapper on. And you're like, wow, I just never knew how magical a crayon is, you know, by the time it gets, gets to market. And so there's something about seeing how something is made to see what it's made of. Like when you see the gradual growth and evolution of something, you really understand what it's about and what it is. And that's, that's kind of where we have the middle of the sandwich there, right? From 100% Jewish to 0% Jewish is this segue moment of the church in transition. Heavily persecuted, heavily providential, but nonetheless, the gospel does go forward through the disciples into this uh, 50%, 50% territory. And so what we have in the, in the scope of the narrative is, is Luke will zoom out to the crowds and then zoom into an individual. And we're going to meet some of those individuals today, actually three of them we'll talk about. But I just want you to think about this because the main individual that we'll talk about today is Saul. And I just want you to set, uh, let this sink in for a second, that Saul had quite a doozy of a day in Acts chapter 10. I don't know what kind of day you had and what kind of week that you had, but it's, it's, it's kind of a doozy, and this is basically how it goes. Saul wakes up in the morning, has his uh, morning meditation and tea, who knows, and uh, 6 a.m. thinks it's a normal day, and uh, on his agenda, typically like Saul usually gets up, is killing Christians, right? He just wakes up, he's ready to kill Christians, but then halfway through the day, something happens where he says his flashing light encounter Jesus, everything changes, gets knocked off his horse, becomes blind and can't eat or, or drink for three straight days, and by the end of that day, finds himself becoming a Christian. So he goes from killing Christians to becoming a Christian. And then eventually, some of you guys know that 13 of the 27 books at the end of the New Testament becomes the formidable writer and author of the New Testament and a missionary, the greatest missionary that God has ever created, all within the span of one to maybe 3.5 days, right? Going from murderer to missionary in a series of a couple of days. And what will that tell us, other than this, that in, in Acts chapter 1, right, we, this is, this is the, whole, like the whole framework of the reality of the narrative. Like, the, the logic of the book of Acts is that basically two things are true. Jesus is up and the Spirit is down. Everything that has authority comes out of that throne. Everything you see in this world and everything you see in that Acts book is about him having authority. But a badge is no good unless it has power. So the Spirit comes down, hits believers, and there's nothing that can stop the Spirit of God. All authority and all power comes into the earth, and we have a guy that starts his day as a, mission, as a murderer and ends his day as one of the greatest missionaries to ever, ever, ever walk the earth, right? And so what conclusion can we make about this other than that if Paul has gone from murder to missionary and Jesus is up and the Spirit is down, other than this, that Paul was not God's accident, he was God's choice. God went out on a search, you know, monster.com job recruiter to go find out who was going to be his greatest missionary in all time, and he th- thought to himself, you know who I'm going to have write almost half the New Testament and lead the nations to Christ? Oh, yeah, the murderer, Paul. So either that was a blind mistake by God, or he actually meant it. He didn't just pick Paul in spite of his past, but because of his past. I don't know if that makes you feel any better, right? Most people are swiping right based on, base, 
You know, like most people, they choose you because who you are. God has chosen you, the place that you're at, the you know, situation in life that you have. I don't want to offend you, but not because of who you are. Because of who you're not. He did not pick you because of the clean parts of your past. He picked you because of the checkered spots in your past to show off who he is. And so this is the whole point, right? So if you, if you look at Paul's story and you look at yours and you look at Jesus up and the spirit down, is that when it comes to the past, the reason why God does not allow us to cut out parts of our picture and our past is because God is not in the business of erasing past. He's in the business of redeeming them, of making them new. Not unseeing the past, but reseeing it through a whole new light through Jesus. If Paul really meant by forget your past, erase your hard drive, and never think on it again, well, he's not following his own example because in Galatians he talks about his past, in Ephesians he talks about his past, in Corinthians he talks about his past. He's talking about being the worst, right, the lowest of all the apostles because he, part of his, the way that he shares his story in the gospel is to talk about his past. And so um, the, the concept, really, of, of biblical remembrance, this is really throughout the entire Bible of Deuteronomy 9-7 or any of 1 Peter or any of the other books is like, a lot of verses will start with this word remember because if there's no remembrance, there's no redemption. If you don't know where your past was, you don't know how far he took you. And so verse 7, for example, in Deuteronomy 9-7, just a classic like underpinning of, of just biblical you know, theology and, and the story of God's people. Verse 7, remember this. Don't you ever forget where you come from. I'm not saying dwell on it. I'm not saying be defined by it. But don't fall for the folly of trying to escape your past because it's not possible. I'm not calling you to escape your past. I'm calling you to redeem it and Jesus to redeem it in your midst. So remember this and never forget where you come from. Never forget how you aroused the Lord's anger in the wilderness from the day you left Egypt until you arrived here. You have never rebelled, or, or, uh, arrived here. You have been rebellious against the Lord, Deuteronomy 9.7. If David didn't have a memory of killing bears and lions and, and attackers of his sheep, the question becomes, would David have the boldness of courage to sling a rock at Goliath? No. Because God was building his remembrance over those, over those years is not to forget them, but to see them redeemed, right? If the, if the tale of the unmerciful servant, actually, right, the tale of the unmerciful servant, I guess, is the cautionary tale. The crux of what Jesus is saying in that, in that parable is the fact that the reason why he was unforgiving, why was the, guy, why was the unforgiving servant who was forgiving 100 bags of gold compared to the day's wages that the guy was supposed to give of him, of the lower servant, what was the unforgivable servant's problem? He forgot. He forgot what he was forgiven of, and so then failed to forgive the one that was in front of him. How can you remember what you're forgiven of unless you remember? And so this is the kind of sermon in a sentence as we'll get into Acts uh, chapter, chapter 10 today, or 9 rather. Uh, redemption is not about erasing the past, but re-seeing it through Jesus' lens. We're going to meet three different characters because Paul's not the only one that's getting reoriented the first one, uh, I'm just going to have little acronyms because it helps us remember the names of the people in the stories. We keep going. Uh, but the first person we're going to meet is, uh, and I'm not making it by stretch. I think it's a biblical thing. The first person that we're going to meet is uh, Satanic Saul. Okay? Everybody say, stop it, Saul. Just knock it off, buddy. Okay, so the first person is Satanic Saul. The second person we're going to meet is Anxious Ananias. Got it? Anxious Ananias. Somebody say, Annie, are you okay? <laughs> Annie, are you Okay. The last person that we're going to meet on the Damascus Road here is, uh, is Bold Barnabas, or Barney, as I like to call him. Say, we're a happy family, Barney. <laughs> All right, here we go. So meanwhile, Saul was breathing out like it was oxygen, murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, 
so that he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. The breathing idea, it's almost like Genesis 1 all over again. It's like the way that God spoke the world into creation. The persecutor breathes hate and murderous and slander and bloodletting and all these types of things into the, into the world. It's, it's really a clash of two kingdoms. And really the, the true persecutor, the capital P persecutor, isn't his name Saul. His name is Satan. It's kind of why I get the, the title there, Satanic Saul. But it's a discouraging thought when you think about ratios and proportions. You know, we're here for about, you know, two hours, you know, on Sunday morning. And let's say that's the only access, you know, that you're engaging the presence of God in prayer and, and being encouraged by Jesus and his people and so forth. Um, what this passage is leading off is, you know, that the, that the persecutor, which is not Saul, the capital P persecutor, is not a two-hour-a-week type of a guy. The persecutor that comes across this church, you, you don't know this, but there is somebody that is hired and employed and, and empowered to come after you, not just to play nice and cuddle, you know, to pursue you, to go get papers against you and to go and fight and take, take action against you. He does not want to coexist. He wants to conquer you. And you have a full 24-7 employed person called the persecutor who's coming after you. You also have a 24-7 person called the advocate in the Holy Spirit. But Paul would be the first one to tell us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. So it's not just when you're not around people that the enemy or Jesus has access to your heart. But the persecutor is well on the loose, and it doesn't matter what name or face he has in front of him. He'll use whatever he can, whether it's bribery or bullying or intimidation, to get you to drop your witness. But verse 3 says this, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice preach the most powerful but short sermon you've ever heard, not just as I am, not God loves you, you know, because he loves you, because he loves you. This is Jesus's, or this is Jesus's come to the altar moment for Saul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That's his sermon. Verse five, who are you, Lord? Saul says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So in a matter of six or seven words, Jesus took the uh, liberty of basically turning this poor guy's life completely upside down. Everything they thought was up was down. Everything they thought was a lie was true. Everything they thought was true was a lie. Everything begins to spin for him, which is why there's such a disillusionment and dis disorientation for Paul. If what he has just heard is really from heaven, and God is saying through the Spirit that this is Jesus, the church, in whom you are persecuting, then a couple things are true. Number one, all the Bible that he has memorized is really all about Jesus. The guy he was trying to kill was actually the one who was fulfilling all of the words that he was, he was writing. Number two, that apparently this God, who has tons of power to knock people off horses and put scales in people's eyes, is not only just like advocating for the church, he's empathizing with the church. Persecuting me, he says. This isn't just my people, this is my body. Three, that I struck you off your horse, but I didn't kill you, which means for some reason you're showing mercy to me. And it starts to make sense why that after getting knocked off his horse, if you've ever had some epiphany or some cataclysmic you know, chaos thing that ha hits you, for three days he can't even eat or, or drink or sleep. Have you ever had something that's so alarming Somebody sat you down and said, you don't know this, but these years you've been adopted. Somebody sat you down and said, you didn't know this, but your parents are getting divorced. Somebody said, I hate to tell you this, Mr. or Mrs., but this person is dead. These types of moments will, will cause you not to eat or sleep for, for quite some time. And so this is the kind of just spin that hits Paul uh, right between the eyes. And so this is a radical moment for sure for Paul. But if you think about it, I think that the scripture is trying to tell us it's not uncommon to the Christian thing. I think what the scripture is trying to tell us is that, uh, let me get my little um, sermon, sermon prop today, is that all of us, not just Paul, 
uh, are, are suffering from something really, really, um, really, really uh, uh, problematic and, um, and challenging to all of us. And that is, all of us are, are born uh, spiritually blind. Guess that. And so, but it's not only that, right? Because blind people have a, have a hard time because you're walking around in a world that's not made for blind people and you're running into shard objects and all that stuff. But the other part about spiritually blind, this is the other catch, is that the problem with being spiritually blind is that spiritually blind people don't know they're blind. Man, is that really rough. Because in the meantime, they'll come into a room and they'll, like this, and they'll just look around and be like, man, look at all the logs in these people's eyes. They are so blind, you know. And then you go to this person, you're like, man, they can't see how blind they are, and this person just doesn't see how much they stink, and this person doesn't see how cross-eyed they are, and this person doesn't see how backwards they are, right? I wish somebody would wake them up and pull a plank out of their eye. And meanwhile, they don't realize they're just as blind as the people that they're with, right? So that's, that's, a, that's a big problem. The second problem that happens is that blind people, you know, abuse just means misuse. Like, we think of abuse as something like part of a 911 call. But we, anytime you don't know the use of something, you're going to abuse it. You're going to use it the wrong way. That's abuse, right? And so blind people, you know, they'll pick something up, and they don't know what it is. And so uh, they'll use it in a way that God doesn't intend it, you know? So they'll pick up their marriage like this and they'll just kind of tune it, you know? And then they'll just start playing. They'll be like, how come this can't make me happy? Like, I don't understand why this is not giving me the satisfaction. You owe me the satisfaction of making me happy. Why doesn't this, because it's not the use. Because you're looking at this thing as though it's supposed to make you happy, but marriage is supposed to make you holy, Right? Or you'll pick something up, and for a couple of years on a career, you're just like, I just can't get satisfied. Oh, I just, I just can't understand why this doesn't work. This is, this is the nature of spiritual blindness. It's like you have the wrong dictionary for things, and you're touching things, and you think that something is, but it's not. And, of course, the worst one is just like, why doesn't life just give me what I want all the time? I don't understand why it just doesn't revolve around me. And here's the worst thing. Here's where it gets really bad, because that can happen in a day or two. Here's what is really, really horrible for a spiritually blind and deaf person. Uh, is it's not just the fixtures in the room, but it's the foundation. You actually could go for 20 or 30 years building something on a foundation that's not meant to be built on. And now it's too late. Because you built your whole life thinking that your kids were going to be excited to invite you home for Thanksgiving but your kids didn't do that. So now your whole life falls apart because you were doing all of it for an expectation you didn't even know existed. You were building this career that you thought was going to satisfy. You built the whole thing and nobody was nice enough to tell you by the age of 60 when all your kids are growing up that it wasn't something to build your house on. And now, now you're in a bad place. So I just want to read this passage that Paul writes to us in the book of Ephesians. Um, Paul, he could have said anything in his prayer, right? Ephesians is a powerful book. It talks about grace, talks about faith. It goes all the way to talk about workplace and marriages and spiritual warfare and all that kind of thing. Paul, spending thousands of dollars and lots of hours in this prison to write this letter, decides to open up prayer at the end of his initial little sermon in the beginning of Ephesians 1 and 2 and kind of surprises about what he prays for because as I read it, notice Paul is not praying for Aunt Betty's shoulder, right? He's not even praying that the tithe would go up for the church, seems to me that the guy that sees it more clearly than almost anybody has seen it, at least in this, in this chapter, the most important thing that Paul wants to pray for you and I is that we see it, is that we see Jesus. So this is what he says in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. 
And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. Paul's got a finite amount of real estate on his prayer list, and he's not praying for your ankle. He's praying for your eyes. Because he knows that if somebody can see Jesus, if they can see who Jesus is and see clearly who he is, then as 1 John says, then our hearts will be purified and we can be pure as he's pure. To see Jesus, to have a revelation of Jesus is all that matters. If you guys have any kids, but like, here's the trick, right? The kid is not going to clean up his room. You know why? He doesn't care. He doesn't care. I just want to get to the end of that cul-de-sac and just let you know. It doesn't stress him out one bit. He doesn't smell that. He doesn't care. He has no idea that it's, cl- it's not clean. He's literally only responding to your carrots and sticks to get the room clean because he doesn't care if it's clean. Do you know we'll get a kid to wear deodorant every time when the girl that he likes tells him he stinks? <laughs> right? When you get the vision, when you have the seeing, the being is obvious. So I want to say this, you know, potentially to you as a Christian is that potentially one of the most powerful things you could do and wake up in the morning is not like, yeah, yeah, I get it, Lord. I know you want me to read my Bible. I'm going to read my Bible. And, you know, you want me to go and evangelize and go and evangelize. And I'm just going to do the things I need to do. Potentially, if you read Paul's prayer, maybe the best thing to do is not say, hey, let's go out and get it. Is maybe just look up at him and say, based on what's in my heart, I don't know if I get it, Lord. Maybe the first thing to pray in the morning is not open up my hands, but open up my eyes that I would see you because I don't think I get it. According to Paul is that if you get even a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, then being a, a servant in your marriage is easy. And so the question becomes, if I don't have the discipline and the rigor and the duty and the ability to go be a good husband, maybe the problem isn't my effort. Maybe it's my vision. Maybe I don't get it. And I can, I can, I can start at the, at the line of scrimmage of that prayer. So we meet a second guy. His name is Anxious Ananias. And anxious Ananias can see perfectly, but he can't hear very good. He hears in part, but not in full. So uh, verse 10 says, um, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called him uh, in a vision. Um, He says, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands to restore his sight. All right, so I actually was going to um, literally call Greg Stewart on my iPhone, but we're just going to do... Actually, I'm going to call you. Okay, can I call you? We're going to do a little role play, okay? okay you ready? Do I, have, do I have your right number? Right, let me see this. Greg's a great runner. He helps me see and hear the voice of God. I just figured I would... I'm going to call Greg. I just need you to role play this, okay? So um, as Greg picks up the phone, hopefully he doesn't feedback, uh, we do groups around here. We try to get people plugged in. I e-harmony, that's what I do. So when you put in the connect card, I personally want to reach out to you. I want to make sure that you find a place. Oh, Greg's calling me. Let me just answer this. End and accept, hold and accept. I'm going to end and accept. Hey, Greg. Can the, can the house hear what Greg is saying? Okay, let me put him on speaker. Check one, two. Greg, can you hear me? Yes. Greg, how's your week going? Yeah, it's a good week? Are you got, I'm having such, did you run any miles? Three, yeah, that's, get it together, buddy, that's not enough. I need you to, I need you to go ahead and up that. Um, are you and Liz still leading group on Sunday nights? What time does that start? 
4.30. Are there openings? Can people get into the group? It's debatable. Okay, so it kind of depends on who they are. All right, so uh, I got this... I got this great group, or great person that I want to um, add to your group. It's going to be really great. They're a really great person. Yeah, a um, couple of details that I want to let you know. So he's not from, from around here. He's actually from Saudi Arabia. And uh, he kind of has a little bit of a, of a checkered past. You know what I mean? Kind of like might need some sozo and some prayer. Uh, he actually is the son of a billionaire uh, in Saudi Arabia. If there's any single ladies in there. He's got, a, he's got a beard like you. The only thing is, is he's been hanging out in the caves of Afghanistan for a little while. He has had six wives in the course of his life. He's actually one of 52 people uh, in his family. He was born to 52 brothers and sisters. Uh, his name's Osama bin Laden. Have you ever heard of him before? Okay. So I was just thinking, he was baptized yesterday. And so I was just thinking about sending him over to the house with the kids and just have him hang out and do a little bread, word, and prayer. What do you think? All right, great. How about a hand of applause for, uh, for Greg's work? Yeah. It's just really hard, other than trying to like play the whole role play out, to catch the gravity of what just happened, that this guy, Ananias, on the basis of a word, is supposed to invite basically some combination of Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden, and, and, uh, and um, uh, I can't remember the other terrorist that I had in my, in my notes earlier, to small group, right, on the basis, on the basis of a word, and so it continues on, and, and, and so there's some retort other than Greg. Greg's full of spirit. Ananias was only half full of spirit that day. And so uh, he says, Lord, Ananias answers, I've heard of many reports about this man and all the harm he has done for your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who have come in your name. Verse 17, but the, or 15, but the Lord says to Ananias, I said, go. One of the most prevalent words in all of the book of Acts is the word go, and the going precedes the scene. Like in our idea, we want to see what the Airbnb looks like before we go to it, right? But faith comes by hearing, hearing that by the word of God. The seeing in the book always comes after the going. So the seeing has to come after you hear this word and respond to it, turn your go into it, turn God's go into a yes. So he says, go, go to the house of Jesus on Straight Street and ask for a man, oh, excuse me, but the Lord says, go the second time in verse 15, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. In other words, I know what the report says. I know what the report says. But the, the church is not built on reports. It's built on testimonies. The church is built on the words of Jesus. That's how you were built up. That's how your family was built up. That's how the church is built up. And that's how... Saul is going to get built up. If, I, if you say he's a murderer, but I say he's my chosen instrument, then what I say is true and everything else is a lie. And so the vision comes by hearing, not by, by seeing. And so then the last two words there that Ananias says kind of responds everything, I think, to what Luke wants to get across about the heart of the church when it hears something that doesn't correspond to necessarily what it sees. Verse 17, when Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. Did you hear the words, the two words that should put chill bumps on our skin? Verse 17, to the Osama bin Laden, in this case Saul, brother Saul. Brother Saul is what Ananias says because of what the Lord said, not because of what he saw. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here 
has sent me so that you may again be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Uh, I don't know if you remember, um, in the Christmas story, there's, a, there's a, the cousin of Jesus is John the Baptist. And um, for the first few months um, of his pregnancy, this really weird thing happens where um, his dad, Zechariah, doesn't believe that John the Baptist is John the Baptist. And so this little weird, confusing miracle happens to Zechariah where uh, he can't talk. He has to put a chalkboard around his neck and actually write out the words that he's trying to say. And... Um, it's because of his unbelief. It's because Zechariah says to the Lord when, when God speaks to him, this is John the Baptist, the one, you know, Elijah, that everybody prophesied about. He says, how am I supposed to have this baby? You know, like we're X amount of years old and we're not supposed to have the baby. And so from that point on, he's not allowed to speak because, because of his unbelief. And it kind of makes you think about that for a second. Like, just think about this for a second. What if every person in this room, um, as they were growing up, your father was only allowed to speak what God said about you to you? Imagine the impact and the influence that if somehow, by some divine work of miracle, that the words of your father's mouth was actually muted unless they agreed with Jesus. Furthermore, think about it this way. What if, for whatever amount of months, in this church, that as we would think about things to say, about where we're going to eat or what we're going to do or what we thought about this event, only the words that agreed with what the father said and only the words that Jesus said were allowed to come our mouth and everything else was muted. What would be the impact of six to nine or 12 months in a church like that? If all that we could see and all that we could say is only what Jesus said, because faith comes by hearing. I was sharing this with the volunteer meeting uh, earlier uh, this morning, but I ran into a, a, a girl from a youth group that I hadn't seen in some time, and I didn't really recognize her as I pulled up to the Chick-fil-A menu. There's about five people that are all, you know, saying my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure as you go up around to get that, you know, chicken sandwich. And man, there's just no more excited serotonin burst in my life right now than when I'm going up to the fifth person to pay for my spicy chicken sandwich because it's just the best. And I pulled up to this girl and I could see that thing of familiarity. Like I, I kind of know who you are, you know, from this youth group. But of course, the thing about youth group is you look exactly the same and they look like 20 years older, you know, a full grown adult. And so it dawned on me, I remembered. I remember this girl named Kat, and she was so excited to see me, and she was talking about everything that had gone on in her life. And I just remember, she was just in middle school by the time that I left, and she was one of the tough ones. She was definitely one of the ones you needed to keep entertained, and she was moving every two seconds, and she was real squirrely, and she just wouldn't sit still and all those types of things. And, um, and she says, I'm so excited. Uh, I just got done with school, and I'm going to start an adoption agency. I'm going to work to, to help people in this day and age to, to find homes and place them and and help people get adopted. And she said, remember, because I was adopted. And I had forgotten about that point. But she was from Eastern Europe, and she had been adopted. And, and I thought back about, you know, this passage, you know, reading it this week, and I thought to myself, man, when I saw her back in 2012, you know, did the words that come out of my mouth come out of my eyes or come out of his eyes? Did the way that I treated her, right, did it come out of this idea that this person is a future orphan rescuer person or just a kid that's in my front row that's making too much noise? And so this is what is happening, right? Like, like, why is it, think about this, that Saul is struck down blind for three days. He's wandering around and can't eat. And really, in Galatians, he says he wanders for three more years trying to reorient the disorientation that's going on all around him. That he is not permitted to see until the contingency of touching the church. Right? Isn't that the domino effect? Paul is made blind until he touches the church. 
Not even until he hears the voice of Ananias or, or touches the ground that Ananias is walking on. Until Ananias can put his hand on Paul, Paul can't see. And this brings out a very illuminating point that is really being preached throughout the whole entire book of Luke and Acts, is that in the book of Acts, the church, the table that people gather around to break bread and fellowship and pray and these types of things in Acts chapter 2, that when the church comes around the table to break bread, eyes are opened every time. There's something about when I stop and see you in prayer, asking to see you the way that the Father sees you, I not only see you, but I see Jesus. In some ways that I see you and to see Jesus, I get to actually see myself. Some of my blindness, in fact, and scales fall off because I could see if, if the blindness that you're experiencing in your life is not mitigating or prohibiting the grace of God from shining down onto your life, then if God is great for you and grace is great for you, then why couldn't God's grace be great for me? You see, this is the point, is that the, the revelation of Paul to have his eyes closed so that they could be opened isn't fully culminated until his eyes get on the church. Until he is able to see the church the way that Jesus sees the church, he can't even see himself. And that the eyes are open when the bread is broken. And so we finally come down to the, to the, to the example, the two non-examples. One can not see and can hear, and one can hear but can't see. And we get introduced to bold Barnabas, and we'll close there. But verse 26 says this, When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he, had, he was really a disciple. But verse 27 says, But Barnabas, always love the buts in the Bible, took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told him how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. The only way that somebody is able to properly show and tell the gospel is because they can see and hear it. Barnabas is the one that can see and hear the gospel because he's not afraid. He is not more afraid of Saul than he is of the Lord. And so he can see clearly, which, by the way, is what makes an encourager, right? Barnabas' name is encouragement. It's not flattery, but to preach the word of the Lord over somebody's life. To see the kid that's going to start an orphanage when they're in middle school before they're 25. The encourager is one that can see it and says what God says, not what they see and what they hear with their own natural eyes. So he told them how Saul, uh, on his journey, had seen the Lord and how the Lord had spoken to him. So Saul stayed with them and moved freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And verse 31 gives us a hint at what Saul's problem is and Ananias' problem was and now Barnabas', Barnabas testimony is doing is verse 31, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. Persecution is not forever. A peace is coming. And they were strengthened, living in, and this is the secret to seeing clearly, the fear of the Lord. Teach my heart to fear your ways so that I may see you. The pure in heart will see God is, the, is what Matthew 5 says. It's the fear of the Lord that leads to an undivided heart that allows my heart to see you clearly. Teach my heart to fear the Lord that I can see the way that he sees. And encourages the Holy Spirit and increases um, in numbers. And so uh, I just want to put up to close um, the intentional question that goes along with this little chart. And, and I had been looking at different blogs and readings. Actually, we'll go back to the sketch that I did. Um, uh, but um, I, I read a great you know, article from ACBC. It's this uh, American-credited um, uh, Bible counselors. I think it's what it is, and, and, and this guy, this pastor, I'll give him credit, Steve Byers, uh, wrote a really great, compelling um, little journal, I think, about um, what it means to deal with your past. Not dwell in your past, but deal with your past. 
And uh, just thought I would, I, would, I would put this up here to, to meditate on us, uh, for us and, and for ourselves and for the people that we do life with, that we might have our eyes open and ears open because um, dealing with the past is not unseeing the past, it's seeing it redeemed through Jesus. It is seeing Jesus for the first time and then taking three years or three days without eating or sleeping to reorient our entire life around that disorientation, to see Jesus and re-see everything else in light of him. And so the way that the, 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 the pastor talks about it is really that our past um, can be divided into four quadrants. The y-axis speaking of innocence or guilt. Uh, either um, I sinned in that event in my past and I was guilty of that sin or I was innocent of it. Like it's not good tidings and uh, forgetfulness that sees our sin made whole and cleansed. It's confession. It's believing in, in the truth and seeing that uh, Jesus is the capital T above all truth and the truth can set us free. It's not avoiding the truth. So it's innocence versus guilt, and then the other two axes is well versus poor. Did I respond well or did I respond poorly? And he just talks about, and I can feel free to send you the article if you'd like to read more of it, but he just says that if you have been uh, sinned against and you um, have pain in your past um, and you uh, were innocent and you responded well, then the correct response is to mourn. Mourning is not complaining, it's not solving, it's not vindicating, it's not, it's not blaming whoever it is that hurts you, it's just hurting. It's crying with God until you find his comfort. Because without his comfort, you'll only punish. So in the pain of your past, the disciples called the mourn. If you were innocent, but you responded poorly to it, then Jesus says, don't return evil for evil, return evil for good. It's not what comes at you, it's what comes out of you that you'll take with you into your future. So no matter what's come at you from an innocence guilty perspective, if you responded poorly to it, own the poor part. Because it's not about them. It is about you and your future, and your future's future, and your kids' kids' kids. And so what is it that potentially there is to repent about responding poorly to an innocent situation? If you were sinned against, or, excuse me, on, on the guilty side, if you sinned and you sinned against somebody else, but you repented of it, and you confessed your sins, and you're tempted to continue to try and find absolution in some other way by serving and and burying your past, and proving your worth, and so forth, then the gospel would not tell you to work harder, but to believe, to look up and not out, and test your faith whether you believe the sin is greater than the Savior, or the Savior is greater than the sin, and to continue to preach the gospel to yourself daily, on and on and on, to believe that who the Son has set free is free indeed. But if you are guilty, and you did not respond well. You did not confess your sin. It's not too late to confess. That even if it was 30 years ago and the person's dead and gone, you never actually talked to them again. There's power in the confession. And there's weight that you're carrying that gets released when you confess one to another. There's healing on the other side of confession. And so I think if we read a real good spectrum of biblical um, understanding that uh, Jesus has not come for us to forget our past, nor to dwell on our past, but to see it redeemed through him. He is mighty to save our past, our present, and our future. And so my question is for you today, as the band comes forward and uh, as Ash makes her way to lead prayer for us today, um, is this, how has Jesus uh, begun to redeem your past, or how is he redeeming your past? And uh, man, we couldn't really do this in a sermon setting, I'm sure. It'd be something for a long coffee and a walk and a cup of tea, maybe with a loved one. But where is it that you have seen Jesus want to poke at and redeem your past? Because your past, although it shapes you, does not hold you captive. And it does not define you. And Jesus is not afraid of your past because he has actually come, not in spite, but because of your past. If you have no past, you have no testimony. And then what is Jesus here to do in the first place? And so 
What does it look like for Jesus to walk with you hand by hand in the counsel of scripture, in the comfort of others, in the presence of the spirit, to see your past redeemed in his name? Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. 